Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Lee, literary editor of The Spectator. My guest this week is a former religion editor of the TLS, Rupert Short, whose new book is The Hardest Problem. Now, The Hardest Problem in this case, not being consciousness, but it's an even harder one than that. It is The Problem of Evil, an ancient subject to which Rupert provides a fresh approach. Rupert, welcome. Now, gosh, what an ambitious thing to take on. Your book is quite short and it's you know very clear. Can you start by telling me kind of what made you think this was a subject you needed to or even could address? And who were you hoping, you know, was the audience for such a book? Thank you, Sam. Well, I cut my teeth as a, a biographer. I'm in a strange little class of one in being a biographer of both a a Pope and an Archbishop of Canterbury. When I entered an essay prize, the Hazlitt essay prize a few years ago with an essay in defense of Christianity, my agent said, why don't you make this the the first chapter of a brief reply to the the new atheists? And that was the seed of a a book called God is No Thing. And I've made, my smudge on the wall of life is not a large one, but I've beavered away a little bit over the past few years, trying to demystify philosophy and theology for a general readership, and in in particular to to an audience of sceptics. I worked for many years on the TLS, as you mentioned, in an office where I don't think anyone else went to church. It was about as far from being a religious bubble as you could imagine. And for a long time, I've been exercised by this business of how you can defend the coherence of a religious take on reality, in my case, a a Christian one, to an audience of sceptics. And at the beginning of last year, a, a publisher approached me and asked if I'd like to write a book about believing in God in in a climate where, of course, most intellectuals, most professional philosophers are pretty devout atheists. So I embarked on that, and then I spoke to an anthropologist friend who inhabits the twilight zone, let's say. I think he's a reluctant unbeliever. And he said, don't you think with the pandemic and, and what have you that... It's actually evil and suffering where where people are at. And to cut a long story short, I I passed that message on to my publishers who said, well, do you know what? Why don't you do God, evil and suffering? Now, in the process, I ended up shoehorning in quite a lot of that basic philosophy because I'm not sure that you can approach the question of God, evil and suffering in the first place without trying to establish whether belief in God is reasonable. Now, evil and suffering are the, the starting points, you know, as you write, write even on the first couple of pages, and as you just said. But those, as you go on to unpack, are theologically and philosophically two slightly different things, aren't they? Yes, that's true. I mean, there's an awful lot of groundwork to do, as I've indicated. One point, I I suppose, as as you're trying to establish a grid, is that a physical universe has its own integrity. I mean, somebody like Thomas Aquinas was saying way back in the 13th century, entities in the world exist by winning the favour of their environments. Fire must consume air in order to burn. Deer must eat saplings. A... Tiger's good is, is a buffalo's evil. So you can't, you can't have all of that good, says Aquinas, without associated rupture. And that means illness and suffering. I mean, it means everything that befalls a, a physical world that, that is not God. I mean, anything that is not God, by, by definition, will be subject to decay, to collision, and, and so forth. And then... In the Abrahamic faiths, in particular, there, there is an idea that God has given us free will and that if we, if we choose to 
commit evil acts. There, there may be consequences for us, both in this world and, and the next, but we are free to, to perform those acts. And one of the things I do early on is quote the answer that Jonathan Sachs gave when he was asked where God had been at, at Auschwitz. And he said the following, God was there in the words, you shall not murder. He was there in the words, do not oppress the stranger, in the words, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But Sachs immediately added that the Holocaust was not in and of itself a new challenge to faith. Exactly the same question could have been asked of Cain and Abel, among innumerable other examples. So he adds, why did God let Cain kill his brother? And the truth is, that is the Jewish equation. We believe that God gave us freedom. It is the most fateful decision he made in the entire universe. Freedom means that if we do well, we are little lower than the angels. But if we do bad, we are lower even than the beasts. That is our world. God teaches what's good and what's evil, what we should do and what we should not do. But God does not intervene to force us to do good or to prevent us from doing evil. Yes. I mean, Sachs, I think, in that quote goes on to say that the Holocaust was a challenge not to belief, but to faith in humanity. Yes. I mean, he turns things round in, in a sense, doesn't he? Because he, he says not where was God, but where, where was man? And I thought these, these words were so powerful that they were worth quoting at length and not in a, a footnote, but in the body of the text. And he says that there was one sense in which the Holocaust changed the whole equation. The culture that produced it was not distant. This colossal tragedy and crime took place in the heart of the most civilized culture that the world has ever known. A culture that achieved the greatest heights of human achievement in science, in philosophy, in rationalism. This was the culture of Kant and Hegel and Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, the culture of Goethe and Schiller and Bach and Beethoven. Half the signatures of the Vance Declaration, authorising the final solution, so-called in 1942, carried the title of doctor. And that was just Germany. France, the country that gave us the revolution and the rights of man, had an astonishing history of anti-Semitism. As for Vienna, the cultural capital of Europe was also the epicentre of anti-Semitism. After the Holocaust, Sachs adds, some people lost their faith. Some people kept their faith and some people found faith in God. But after the Holocaust, it is morally impossible to believe in man. The Holocaust is the final decisive refutation of the idea that you can have a humane civilization without fear of heaven and without belief in the sanctity of life. The Holocaust may make some lose their faith in God, but it must make all people lose their faith in humankind. After Auschwitz, you have to be either very ignorant or very naive to believe in secular humanism. The real challenge of the Shoah is not to faith, but to lack of faith. Yes, and I mean, that's a very a very bold claim. I mean, secular humanism does somehow, maybe thanks to a lot of very naive people or stupid people, it endures. And I mean, what I'm interested in particularly in the your approach in this book, because you very often you're anticipating and dodging and countering, you know, the arguments that are going to be made against you by, above all, secular humanists. How much do you think it's possible for these modes of argument to meet? I mean, the premises on which these things rest, you know, if you're coming from a religious viewpoint, if you're coming from a, an atheistical or humanist viewpoint, quite often seem to be quite far apart. Do you think the conversation is decisively possible? Or can you simply sort of make gestures across a divide? Well, I hope it can be. I mean, just to pick up what you've just said, I think that secular humanism can be very naive about the darker side of human nature. There's a, a very widespread assumption that things go wrong because of ideology. You know, banish the bad ideology and somehow everything will, will be fine. And uh, I think there's much more darkness in the human heart than that. 
let me try and put it like this. I think that there is, I won't say a solution, I don't believe that there is a comprehensive solution to the problem of evil, certainly not this side of the grave. There is an answer, there is a, a perspective using Christian resources that makes sense to me and and to many other believers. And it's it's well articulated by, by Sam Wells in a, a book I'm reading at the moment, Humbler Faith, Bigger God. And he says, just to, to quote him very briefly, the problem of suffering assumes that God's role is to bring health and flourishing. And if God fails to do that, God is malign or weak. But what if God's role is to be with us always in person in Jesus, in myriad ways through the Holy Spirit, and forever in heaven? God is not an instrument we discard if it malfunctions. God is the essence of all things who astonishingly chooses to be with us, even in desperate hardship, and even in the crucified Christ in indescribable agony. That doesn't make suffering go away, but it turns God's engagement with suffering from a reason for rejection into a reason for worship. Now, that is an answer drawing on the vocabulary of piety, of course. I am not as high up the evolutionary scale as Sam Wells. I'm, I'm only a journalist and a writer. And I start elsewhere trying to, to build the bridges that you mention. First, as I, I was saying a few minutes ago, by asking whether belief in God is reasonable. Now, now that seems maybe rather dry in a way, but it, it does take us, I think, in, into more spiritual territory. One of the things I say is that I, I think the, the cosmological argument, one of the classical arguments for God's existence, remains robust because nothing can make itself. I mean, con contingent reality rests on the creative activity of God. I think there's a widespread misconception that all that, all that argument is saying is, is that there must be one big domino to have given rise to lots of small ones. And it, it's not that, really. It's about a deeper layer of causation. If you... I try to reach for a, an analogy from our own experience. One one thing might be the eye. I mean, the eye is what grounds our vision. It's it's by dint of the eye that we can see anything at all, but we can't see our own eye. Where is Jane Austen in in Pride and Prejudice? Well, of course, the the answer is that she is everywhere and nowhere. She inhabits every single line of the the narrative, and yet she's invisible. Now, I think the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism and Islam, as well as Christianity, are, are trying to push in that, that kind of direction when, when they talk about the cause of all causes, that, that is God. Now, one very, very important implication of that is that the relationship between God and creation is, is not to be seen from a classical standpoint as resembling that between a builder and a house, or a watchmaker and a watch. It's much more intimate than that. It's more like, let's say, the relationship between a singer and a song. And it means that creation is not something believed only to have happened a very, very long time ago. Creation is happening now, from this standpoint, in the sense that our existence, right now, would be impossible without the sustaining activity of God. Now, that, that is not the same as tweaking. I'm not talking about a God who parts the fabric of the heavens to give a, a twist to the mechanism. When I perform the simplest of physical functions, I stick a pan of water on, on the stove to heat up, there is a, a comprehensive explanation from the laws of physics about what is going on there and yet I can still say that everything is held in being moment by moment by the action of God bubbling up under the surface. Now having established that 
It's not that I think I can sweep all problems away to do with evil and suffering. But if you see our being as, as somehow nested within the being of God, it at least, I think, serves to, to reframe matters, to allow a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or whoever to tell a, a story in which some of the assumptions underlying this debate can be adjusted. And um, that's why I think I can talk with you know, a, a little bit of confidence about areas like answered prayer and, and miracle, but perhaps we'll get onto those in, in a minute. There's another metaphor you used or, or analogy that struck me very strongly and I was very interested in where you, early on in the book, where you're talking about, you know, the reasonableness of belief. And to counter what you paint as a sort of scientific argument that says that the only laws of the universe, we can discern the only kind of truths that are useful or, you know, the only truths that exist at all Valid, are the truths yes. of physics and the empirical material measurable world and you say what about maths you know the laws of mathematics are something that you know they're not physical but secularists will agree they're real now i don't know how much you think that that perhaps straw mans some of the secular position but can you develop the idea and, and perhaps explain how you how you use mathematics as well a- there's an argument that it's I mean, there, there, there are a number of arguments for the existence of God. I have alluded to the cosmological argument. I think the argument from moral truths is one to be taken very seriously. There is, as you say, also an argument from, from mathematical truths. We're talking here about meaning. One philosopher I know has, has spoken about the, the M words, Meaning, morality, mathematics, modality. Metaphysics always buries its own undertakers because those who say that the only truths are those deriving from logic and the empirical sciences are not themselves making a verifiable claim. So it follows that whether that claim is true or false, there there must be one fact, which is a non-physical fact, I'm not saying that arguments about mathematics are going to lead you to a, a developed religious faith, but they may, they may give you pause if, if you are stating in a, in a very hard-line way that the only truths are ones that you can establish in a, in a test tube. I work at Cambridge University now, and a friend of mine was at a dinner uh, surrounded by by mathematicians and one very eminent figure said well I'm I'm an atheist but I'm a Platonist and I believe that mathematical truths somehow subsist out there and later at the same dinner my my friend found himself speaking to another mathematician also an atheist but a, a constructivist who said well, you know, maths is only internally true. It's only true in the sense that it's true to say that Sherlock Holmes wore a a deerstalker and not a a bowler. Well, they can't both be right. And one of the things that St. Augustine did back in the day was to, to give Plato's forms a metaphysical change of address. I mean, to, to say that these truths have a have a more secure home if you like in the the mind of god secure metaphysical in the sense of their thoughts and therefore they need a mind <laughs> yes and i think you know with with respect to morality i mean the religious believer can say that they they aren't just exercising a set of individual choices but somehow making visible the way the world is and ultimately the way God is and you know I'm not saying for a moment that a, an atheist can't lead a good life but I think you you might struggle as an atheist or a philosophical naturalist to explain why your moral convictions aren't aren't just arbitrary 
two or three generations ago, there, there was rather a strong tendency in philosophy to look on moral convictions as, as highly subjective. There's been much more of a move in the past few decades to, to emphasise what's known as technically as normativity, the, the objectivity of, of morality. Well, perhaps you've got a bit of a quandary there if you start by saying the only truths are scientific truths. I mean, you applied to you know the domain of mass that methodological naturalism is is perfectly reasonable you know you're doing algebra you don't invoke non-mathematical entities but applied to reality as such philosophical naturalism i think is is much much more speculative and controversial and for decades now philosoph- atheist philosophers have been telling us that they can produce a comprehensive account of reality from from the bottom up playing as it were a game of metaphysical twister with all limb all limbs on on naturalism i'm not sure that any any such account has been forthcoming having said that i mean what i really want to say at, at bottom i is that the theistic account of the world is it's worth considering seriously i don't claim that it's logically coercive i can't speak with with total certitude i have a, a set of disciplines in my spiritual life which give coherence to to my existence but of course i'd be the first to say that everyone has to find their own path in this world well from as it were your own side you quote dostoevsky's ivan karamazov as almost a kind of quintessence of the hardest problem stated in a difficult way. What is it that's specially compelling about the way in which Dostoevsky expresses from a religious point of view the the problem of, of evil? I think it's probably because Ivan Karamazov is, is not straightforwardly atheist. He even assumes a Christian framework, at least for his rhetorical purposes at, at some points in the novel, And he says, you'll be aware that Dostoevsky himself had drawn a lot of his examples from from newspaper cuttings, and that there were examples of hideous suffering in 19th century Russia and in in the Balkans. And he instances a case of of a young girl who was grotesquely maltreated by her own parents, and then when when they were put on trial, they, they were acquitted. And possibly most heartrending of all, a, a little boy, the, the son of a, a serf, who threw a stone which accidentally hit one of his, his master's dogs. And as punishment, he, he was stripped off and placed in a dungeon overnight. And then the, the following morning, he was made to run in, in front of a pack of, of dogs who devoured him alive. And Ivan Karamazov quotes this example to his younger brother, the the novice monk, Alyosha. And he says, supposing that the destiny of all of of humanity is immortal bliss, I, Ivan, do not believe that the suffering of that boy would be an acceptable price to pay for the immortal bliss of, of the rest of us. If that's the deal, then I'm sorry, I just don't accept it, and I hand back my ticket at the entrance to to God's kingdom. Well, you can ask what the alternative is, and that there are moments where Ivan himself tilts in a dangerously nihilistic direction. But what, what stands out to me in particular is that neither Alyosha, the younger brother, nor Alyosha's spiritual mentor, Zosima, offer neat solutions or algorithmic thinking. What they offer is solidarity and relationship. And later on in the story, when Ivan is in in danger of of going mad, he clasps his his younger brother and and says in terms, you know, you, you were always there for me. I love your face, Alyosha. I 
out myself in in my book as as a bit of a, a universalist. You should probably explain what a universalist is in your context. Yes, I, there's been quite a, a large debate about in the world of academic theology recently. It perhaps won't have permeated the wider culture, although it has a bit. Is hell a place of eternal punishment or, or is it a penultimate place and is the destiny of, of all creation, not just of humanity, some kind of transformed existence in a eschatological context. I've had a bit of a, a partner in adversity and there's a, um, a distinguished feminist theologian at Durham, uh, Karen Kilby, who, who's written a, a book on the same theme as mine recently. And her conclusion, I think, is is very much drawing attention to this eschatological horizon. Is the good news of the gospel, she asks, not that suffering is to be sought or embraced, but rather that it is to be treated as if it had no ultimate weight because it cannot fundamentally touch the power of goodness and love. Now, so many of the objections, so many of the the doubts expressed by people who, who just don't see how you can square belief in God with the sort of B-minus world that we inhabit, I think are premised on, on some of those assumptions that I've been trying to unpick about a God who sits at one remove from the world, who is capable of waving a magic wand if, if he wishes, but for some reason doesn't, and is, is cold and, and detached. If you're going to attack the Christian account of the world, it's probably worth at least rejecting what it is that Christians say rather than a caricature of it. And it is very important, I think, to, to stress that in, in many ways Christianity deconstructs many assumptions about what religion is. I mean, the New Testament is, is quite a, an anti-religious document in, in lots of ways, in, in that it, it says, you know, the, the source of all reality took off his crown to share our flesh, to, to anchor his life with, with ours. And it's hard in a way, I mean, if that doesn't reframe things... It ought to, <laughs> in my view. We perhaps need to talk a little a bit about um, unanswered prayer and, and miracle, and I will do that, but uh, by all means pick me up on on um, anything that you want to challenge as well. Well, I just wanted to ask, I mean, in the universalist Christian account of of the universe, what happens in the long run to Ivan if he sticks to his guns. I mean, there's a sort of echo in, in what he says. I think of William Empson's position, though there was a devout atheist rather than a Christian, that Christianity is a religion based on torture, and that, you know, he rejects on his own moral, or from his own moral standpoint, whatever moral scheme God has, has put in. And Ivan is doing that, I guess, from a kind of quasi-Christian position. I mean, is that an act of kind of Luciferian hubris to say, you know, we've reached the doors of heaven and I choose on, you know, thanks to my own free will, to vaunt my moral judgment above that of the Almighty? Mm, it may be, given that as a, as a believer in God, I, I believe that God is the, the source of all created goodness. But it, it may also be that... Uh, Many sceptics at the very end of, of their lives, or who am I to say, may, maybe beyond the grave, are confronted by a vision of goodness and outreach and forgiveness that changes their mind about things. I mean, I, I as a Christian believe that our whole being is anchored in, in a love that will not let us go. But if, if you're an atheist, you, you don't believe that. You believe perhaps, well, what do you believe? Maybe that we're here because we're here. There's the godlessness of the gaps, isn't there? Well, you know, I can't provide an explanation. This is just a squillion to one accident. 
if you lack that sense, that basic sense that all of our existence is a gift in the first place, then I, I dare say you could perhaps be for, forgiven for having a, a much darker view of things. I mean, I, I am happy, to be honest, not to try to speculate too far about what God might do to um, win round, I mean, presumably by then, ex-atheists in heaven. It's a Rowan Atkinson sketch about that. (laughs) (laughs) What I I can say is that um, I think there are enough texts in the New Testament to suggest that the impact of Christ is so all-encompassing as to suggest the idea of a of a new creation a new heaven and a new earth in which absolutely everything will be transformed meanwhile there's work to be done i um when i'm asked at dinner parties you know how how on earth do you believe all this theological candy floss i've tended to produce three rungs in in the ladder if you like in terms of how the bridge between this world and and the absolute might might be made. Stage one would be to say, as I've indicated, we, we are embodied beings with the capacity to grasp meaning and truth, and my goodness, consciousness is no small thing. Secondly, seeing our status as, as a gift, as I've mentioned, prompting awe, gratitude, and, and a heightened sense of ethical responsibility. And... Thirdly, an acknowledgement of this gift as grounded in a reality which freely bestows itself to us. One thing you might ask from that is, well, does that mean that the world is the act of God and, and that's all there is to be said? But I've mentioned prayer and miracle, and if I could just remind you also of, of the idea of our the image that I was trying to build up earlier of our being is nested in the reality of God so we can, as it were, be chisels for the invisible hammer blows of God. And so I, I say in, in my book that when people pray that they're, they're seeking to open up their lives to enough of God's love for a difference to be made, they're trying to be a, a conduit for a healing purpose. So the result can, of course, be practical. If, if I pray for, for Ukraine or Venezuela or, or Syria, I may get involved with, with giving or, or campaigning. But if that's not viable, then the Christian or the Muslim or, or the Jew does make the bold assumption, as to those of other faiths, that just opening one's mind and, and heart to a given source of need somehow brings into the the world something of God's action and God's freedom, which can, in principle, make a difference. And although I think miracles can can exist in in the perception, I mean, the the word paradoxon in in the Greek in the New Testament is really means some, something that induces awe. And, um, you know, I, I feel that I have seen miracles in my own life through people who've engaged in, in the 12-step program, for example. I think that all of that remains in the light of the, the sort of framework I've been trying to build up. It, it remains compatible with the principle that, that the energy of God constantly bubbling up below the, the surface of life can sometimes so seep into the actions of men and women that possibilities we might never have imagined come to fruition. But these miracles, as you described, are miracles of grace operating through human behaviour or through changes in human consciousness rather than alterations to the physical laws of the universe. Yes, it's, it's when something that's perhaps always at the corner of our vision becomes centre stage. I mean, somebody like Aquinas would say that simply by existing, we we participate, you know, we're made in the image of God. So we participate to to a limited degree in God's reality. But then there there is a further element which is connected with how, how far grace is active in us. And that's connected with 
how good we are as people. I mean, how how we you know how how far we are oriented towards God, and he he uses the analogy of the of the sea. You don't give an exhaustive account of the sea just by describing the physics and chemistry of the of the, the water molecules. The sea also operates under solar and lunar influence, and that that's an analogy that Aquinas gives for the the gentle tug of the divine, which may or may not be active in our lives. And I I think probably that's that's where. I would see talk of divine agency coming in rather than, as I say, par- passing the heavens and and tweaking. It's also worth just quickly adding, of course, that when Jesus prayed three times for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane, his prayer was not answered. And um, I think uh, in many cases, people who are on a, a much richer spiritual plane than, than myself who are... Um, liable to to find that they will have to endure rather than being magically delivered you no doubt recall that c.s lewis wrote wrote two books on this subject if it's not outrageously conceited of me to say so and i've tried to do for a, a, a sort of contemporary audience what lewis was was doing a few generations ago in his books yes you make a very good point about lewis's first book being sort of rather like wittgenstein he wrote another book saying actually yes i didn't know what i was talking that, about that was considered a bit smug and he he lived rather a comfortable bachelor life and then he found love relatively late and and married in in his 50s and and his wife had died an agonizing death within a few years and he felt very ashamed of, of what he saw as his previous complacency and said he wouldn't be spared everything that he'd gone through in hindsight because his faith had been reforged entirely in the, the furnace of, of his grief and in fact he he did feel so ashamed that he initially published the second book, A Grief Observed Under a Pseudonym. Can I take you back briefly to your Augustinian metaphor of the action of, you know, the moon and the sun on the sea rather than the molecules of water? I mean, it's a seductive metaphor, but it strikes me that, you know, you might say, well, look, the action of the moon and the sun are just like the molecules in the sea. They're, They're physics. They are simply another, if you like, scientific cause you know it doesn't map on completely it's simply something that if you like the ancients might not have thought of or or understood magic has undiscovered science if you like yes i I think strictly speaking that's true i mean lunar influences are are mapped by physics i wouldn't press that analogy too far i would I suppose simply want to use it to say, you know, that there are more things in heaven and earth than are are dreamt of by your philosophy. And when all said and done, if the energy, the creativity of God, as I say, constantly bubbling up under the surface and sustaining all of created reality in being... I mean, if if that is the truth of things, then that action of God will, you know, when certain circumstances are aligned, it will be very close to the surface indeed. I'd like to pull focus a little bit, if I may, and ask you about the history of this, because, you know, you talk, I mean, Augustine in particular, but other of the church fathers, you know, bring in is very congenial to your argument. And your argument in the book is one that's theologically quite subtle, it talks about, you know, God as the grounds of being rather than, you know, the first domino or, or this sort of watchmaker or all the other analogies that have come. It seems fairly clear to me, though, that, you know, for a lot of Christian history, the sort of vulgar understanding of Christianity and the way it was propagated by its clerisy through medieval and early modern periods, people really did believe that God was a big guy, that good and evil were in direct competition rather than as you you know, rather subtly argue, have a different relationship. They thought that hell was a place where you went forever. I mean, the, the theology which you offer now, 
is a much more subtle one. It's a much more sophisticated one, but it's certainly out of kilter with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of Christian teaching. Did they simply sort of get it wrong between the church fathers at about, I don't know, 2002? Oh dear, yes. You, you may be um, cutting corners a little bit there, but I, I do know what you mean. I think I, I would say religions always attract folk elements. There's um, of course, superstition that arises, but the countervailing forces are probably stronger than you're allowing there. I mean, Augustine, speaking of evil as privatio boni, I mean, that takes you w- way back into the first half of the first millennium, and it's it's an idea inherited from Plato. Augustine, incidentally, who is... Sorry, you should translate that probably for our, our listeners, and for that matter, me, Probatio Boni. <laughs> Evil as, as a failure of good, rather than as, as being um, an entity in itself. Badness is a, a failure of goodness, not, not the other way round. That, that would be one point. Perhaps more relevantly, or in, in terms of your question, I mean, Augustine is, is probably the most influential Christian thinker that there has ever been and he was saying you know very very clearly back in the fourth century that the account of the creation in Genesis shouldn't be taken literally he said rather ingeniously well the sun and the moon weren't created until the fourth day and therefore we're not talking about real 24-hour cycles and at that stage in the in the history of the church, there was there was a great interest in in the analogical interpretation of of scripture. Another point I would make, especially as a Catholic, is that the a great irony of the Bible that scriptural infallibility is not itself a biblical claim. I mean, there isn't really anywhere in the Bible that says, "And you've got to believe every." jot and tittle. I mean, that's why the Catholic Church at the Reformation made such a play of the importance of interpreting Scripture within the context of a community. I'm not saying that great good hasn't come from the Protestant emphasis on plain understanding, but I think the Church you know, needs to be clear, is clear to, to an extent that you need to, to read the Bible with careful interpretive tools. And incidentally, just quickly to, to go, it's Aquinas actually, not, not Augustine, who, who talks about the um, lunar and solar influences. In his commentary on Aristotle, he says something like, isn't it fitting that God didn't make a ship. God made wood that makes itself into a ship. And you, you could argue, I mean, of course, he, he had no idea about Darwin's theories, but he was, in a way, anticipating Darwin by about 600 years. And a priest in the Church of England famously said, you know, a priest and, and early Darwinian and a, a champion of the origin of species, he said, Aubrey Moore, Darwin came to us in the guise of a foe and did the, the work of a friend. Now, I'm using that example to do duty for the fact that the narrative that's got really, really stuck in our culture is that, you know, if you're a Christian, you've got to believe everything in the Bible very literalistically there's an inherent contradiction between science and religion. These are narratives which not very well informed people like Richard Dawkins dine out on, but the the truth is 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 much richer and more complex. I mean the, the, the figures who made the modern world, Copernicus, Descartes, Leibniz, Newton, Galileo indeed. They weren't just scientific geniuses. I mean, they, they were people of profound religious faith. In the case of Newton, I mean, he was more in, even more interested in theology than, than he was 
in science. And yes, physics was quite the side hustle for him. <laughs> yes, and the conflict between religion and science only only really arises later. The fifth of Aquinas's five ways is misinterpreted by Dawkins as an argument from intelligent design is actually an argument about finality. It's about goal-directedness in nature. I wrote a, a little book uh, three years ago called Responding to, to Dawkins's Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide to Atheism. And, and my book is called Outgrowing Dawkins, God for, for Grown-Ups. Now, as you might imagine, I was quite keen for professional scientists to, to read the manuscript. And one distinguished physiologist read it and said, Rupert, I, I don't think you need to change anything. I'm a lifelong agnostic. I, I have no religious convictions at all, so I can't speak to any of the philosophy or theology in this book. The point is that Richard is wrong about the science, let alone the, the theology. And in a nutshell, it's because Dawkins has this frock-coated Victorian paradigm whereby matter consists of nothing more than meaningless bits of stuff. And the consensus has just moved on. You know, these days it's precisely particle physicists or physiologists who will talk, you know, almost in quasi-mystical terms about relationship and cooperation and so forth. And um, books are appearing by philosophers with titles like Aristotle's Revenge because Aristotle did believe in in goal-directedness in in nature. You know, it, it, it does seem natural for galaxies to form and for heavy elements to emerge from the furnaces in stars and as as Martin Rees the astronomer royal has said you know given the darwinian principles of selection for for life and consciousness to emerge in due course and lord rees says the the universe is biophilic and noophilic that's to say tending to produce mind as as well as life now once more i don't say and therefore you have to believe in god i say discoveries awarenesses like this may make one think goodness yes actually perhaps some of this stuff does does sit with a christian understanding it hasn't always been framed in the most sophisticated of ways, although, my goodness, you can read figures like Aquinas and Augustine, and, you know, apart from their literary skill, the sophistication of their presentation of, of, of the Christian message is astonishing. And that would be true very much of figures in, in the Jewish and, and Islamic worlds. It's a great mistake to think of interfaith dialogue as being a contemporary matter alone. You know, bridges were being built between the faiths um, a thousand years ago in extraordinarily creative ways. Also, one point about how demonology, you know, it was sort of medieval, early modern demonology, was, you know, an understandable mark of pre-scientific ignorance. And I'm interested in your sense of how much, if you like, developments in science and indeed the arguments of secular humanists and atheists and rationalists and so forth, have served, if you like, to sort of, in a nice Hegelian way, to sort of sharpen up the theological arguments. I mean, is where we're at theologically now, in some ways, a kind of response to what's happened in the last, say, 150, 250, 300 odd years? Yeah, I think that's that's a very good point. Edward Fazer, author of one one of the most authoritative rebuttals of the new atheists it's a book called the last superstition and he's a a philosopher based in in la and in one of his talks which is available on on youtube i think he says this is the most outrageous caricature the god in whom richard dawkins disbelieves is is simply a blown-up creature it doesn't bear any relation to the the god of classical theism but thank you professor dawkins for giving me the opportunity to spell out what it is that christianity really teaches you've mentioned demons and and hell i feel both very distressed about the corrupt use to which hellfire 
teaching has, has been put over the centuries. But at the same time, keen in a way to say, well, I, I rest my case. Because the word translated as hell in the New Testament is Gehenna, which was the name really of a kind of municipal rubbish dump near Jerusalem, which was it was smoking away most of the time, but it was used metaphorically. And I don't I don't think for a moment that anything that Jesus said, although I mean he does employ hyperbole quite a lot in his rhetorical register, but I don't I don't think it warrants the enormous proliferation of hellfire teaching that arose during the Middle Ages and and subsequently. I'm relieved to say that the, the Christian East, which has always had a I think a much nobler vision of the you know, the nobility of humankind and indeed of the created order, has tended not to be anything like so hard line. So if you were to accuse me of sort of making it up as I'm going along or or perhaps retreating into a bit of a comfort zone, I think at least I would be able to say, well, there are very venerable thinkers from, you know, what what is arguably the the purest strand of Christianity who, who would be more on my side of the argument, let's say, than that of a, a fiery Southern Baptist in America. Southern Baptists, by the way, are new kids on, on the block in Christian terms, and, and an awful lot of, of what is believed by American Christians, really and truly, it has, has far more to say about the culture wars going on in America than, than it does about what I would see as authentic Christianity. Well, I think we'd have to leave it there. Disappointingly, we, we haven't solved the problem of evil, but I very much enjoyed investigating it. Rupert Short, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>